Hey, Darren here. We're bringing you something special today, a full episode from my other podcast, Killer Questions. On Killer Questions, I dive deep into the cases that keep me up at night. Go subscribe to Killer Questions with Darren Karp wherever you get your podcasts. Even if it's for your own safety, hiding and laying low and trying to disappear gets to you after a while. Given the suspicion around the details of Lori's identity and the overall strangeness of this case in general, was there any evidence that her death may not have been a suicide? We don't know. Welcome to Killer Questions with Darren Karp. Today we're talking all about the confounding case of Lori Ruff. Let's get right into it. On January 1st, 2011, Miles Ruff begins searching the home of his brother's former wife, Lori. Lori had recently passed away with her divorce from Blake Ruff, still pending, and her in-laws had a lot of unanswered questions about her. Miles entered her home in hopes of finding some of those answers. The Ruff family had long suspected there were parts of her personal life she purposely kept hidden from them. One of the things Miles finds hidden in the back of a closet is a lockbox. And this lockbox contains an even bigger mystery than the Ruffs or anyone else could ever dream up. Turns out, when Lori took her own life, she also took with her all the answers. But with the help of police investigators and amateur detectives, the Ruffs will spend years trying to crack the case of Lori's true identity. On this episode of Killer Questions, I'm going to be talking to one of the sleuths who knows this case inside and out to get into the things that have been uncovered and the mysteries about this woman that still remain. But first, let's set up the facts as the Ruffs knew them to be. John Blakely Blake Ruff is a shy, soft-spoken man from a prominent and close-knit family in Longview, Texas. In 2003, Blake meets a woman named Lori Kennedy at a Dallas Bible study class, and he is just immediately drawn to her. On the surface, Lori is a very religious woman who regularly attends church. She's described by those who know her as conservative and not particularly social. Sounds a little reclusive to me, but perhaps she's just very shy. Now, the two begin courting, and Blake is really eager to introduce Lori to his parents, John and Nancy. The first meeting takes place over lunch, where Nancy, of course, wants to get to know her son's new girlfriend and just starts asking Lori about her family and life. Now, Nancy finds it odd that she's able to learn very little about Lori. According to the young woman, she had no living relatives whatsoever, no parents, no siblings, not even a distant aunt or uncle or anyone to sort of be related to her bloodline. When asked about her past, Lori had a habit of deflecting the question and instead answering in a, as a, in a, in a tangential type of tone. For example, when Nancy asked where Lori went to high school, Lori begins just talking about college. And I know we all have those friends that are kind of like that, so maybe it doesn't seem particularly weird. You know, we all kind of have those friends that are very evasive and they don't like answering things. But this is also the woman meeting her future in-laws. And I think that you would want to probably give a little bit of your background here. The Ruffs are confused by all the blank spaces in Lori's past. However, Blake takes his girlfriend's answers unquestioningly. Now, once early on in the relationship, Lori mentions that she had destroyed all her old family photos because she'd grown up with a bad home life. Blake never asked 
any follow-up questions about this, never inquiring what had been so bad about her family. And I have to say, people, I just can't imagine learning little tidbits about someone and not following up with anything in a relationship. I mean, don't you want to know a little bit about their history? So many questions. When Blake asks Lori to marry him, Nancy is excited and wants to put a wedding announcement in the paper. But Lori adamantly refuses, telling Nancy, quote, we don't do things like that. Instead, on January 5th, 2004, Lori and Blake marry in secret just outside of Dallas, and the ceremony takes place less than a year after the first two meet, and the preacher who marries them is their only witness. I mean, this is almost heartbreaking. Clearly, Blake is really close to his family. I just can't imagine he didn't want them there to be married in secret. Just seems a little romantic, yes, but also suspicious. Now, after their wedding, Blake and Lori purchase a home on two acres of land in the small town of Leonard, Texas, about 125 miles away from Blake's family. We really don't know whose idea this happened to be, but it really feels like Lori trying to pull Blake away from his family or at least get her away from his family. Now, Lori and Blake try to conceive for years, but Lori miscarries several times, unfortunately. She underwent several rounds of fertility treatments, and in September of 2008, she's finally able to give birth to a daughter. From the moment her baby is born, Lori is the most protective mother. I mean, think about helicopter parents here, people. She's refusing to leave her daughter alone with Blake's family. Nancy's confused about her daughter-in-law's apparent mistrust of the family, telling her, quote, this is grandbaby number nine. We're all baby people over here. To me, it seems a little weird that she would be so distrustful of her in-laws, yet she chose to marry Blake. I mean, that seems like a huge thing here. It, it is really sad. It sounds like Blake's family's just as confused about this rift Lori is causing as I am, and it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Over time, Lori begins to find more and more fault in Blake's family, complaining about them with increasing frequency and refusing to allow her daughter to visit, even when accompanied by Blake. Neither Blake nor any of his family can understand why. This is odd, controlling behavior, and I would say that that's probably the least weird statement I could make about this. Blake is very close with his family, and eventually the strain Lori put on his relationship with them became too much for him. In the summer of 2010, he files for divorce and moves back in with his parents. Okay, so that's the background of Lori and Blake, and this is where our mystery starts. After their marriage ends, Lori seems to become a bit unhinged. Her neighbor, Pastor Denny Garena, speaks to her shortly after Blake moves out and notes that she seems frantic to the point of incoherence, commenting, from that point on, I never saw her focus again. Hoping to help, Danny invites Lori and Blake to separate counseling sessions at his church. Ultimately, the counseling sessions are not enough to repair the broken marriage, but it's a good, I always encourage therapy in, in, in general. This was a major problem for Lori. Remember, she's super religious, and she's adamant about the fact that her religion views divorce as a cardinal sin. In the fall of 2010, Lori's relationship with Blake's family deteriorates even further, if you can kind of imagine. She began sending the roughs threatening emails and making custody exchanges difficult. 
The family ultimately is pushed to the point where they have no choice. They file a cease and desist against Lori, hoping to put a stop to her manic behavior. This brings us to the morning of December 24th, 2010. Blake's father, John, steps outside to pick up his morning newspaper and finds a black Jeep Tahoe idling in his driveway. John goes back inside and calls the police. When authorities arrive at the Ruff's home to search the car, they see what they believe to be blood on the dashboard and a figure slumped over in the driver's seat. Inside the vehicle, they find the body of a woman with a single gunshot wound to her right temple and a pistol still gripped in her left hand. This immediately leads authorities and myself to believe the gunshot wound was self-inflicted. I think that's the scene we're all kind of picturing here. Police search the woman's purse and find a wallet with her ID, and this allows them to confirm the body is Lori Ruffs. Alongside her body is an 11-page letter addressed to my wonderful husband and another letter addressed to her daughter, instructing it to be opened on her 18th birthday. Police review both letters and state they contain ramblings from a clearly disturbed person. Joining me on today's episode is Kenda Martinez. She's an amateur detective who dove right into this mystery and has been working continually for years with other internet sleuths to uncover everything there is to know about this case. And as we'll learn, there's a lot more to uncover. Welcome to the show, Kenda. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I want to hear a little bit about about your background. When did you first hear about this Lori Ruff case? What drew you to this case initially? This case took place in Leonard, Texas. That's where it started out. And that is some place that I used to live several years ago. Just something like this happening to someone that had lived in the little, you know, little small hole in the road town that I had lived in really drew me to it at first. And how did you kind of how did you decide to really get involved and start collecting all the data and information? I mean, what's your first step? Is it just a simple Google search? What do you do? I just dove in and started looking at all the information that was already available from the other armchair detectives and from law enforcement sources. And I saw some, I guess you'd say, holes in places that I knew I could fill, that I had the uh, knowledge and I had the credentials and I had the know-how to gather information to fill those holes. Well, Kenda, with that, we have to get into this because I just have so many questions for you. Okay, let's do it. At this point in this case, Lori has died from a seemingly self-inflicted gunshot wound. We also know that before her death, she seemed to have suffered from some sort of some sort of form of mental illness. However, the Blake family already has a lot of questions about whether Lori is the woman she's claiming to be, and even more questions regarding her identity are about to arise. Given the suspicion around the details of Lori's identity and the overall strangeness of this case in general, Kenda, was there any evidence that her death may not have been a suicide? I I feel that it was... From what I know, I feel that it was absolutely a suicide. She was very disturbed. Her world was crumbling down around her. You know, even even if it's for your own safety, hiding and laying low and trying to disappear gets to you after a while. 
there is some sort of isolation, kind of a, always a fear of being found out. And that could have certainly, if she already had mental illness kind of prior to this, that certainly could have exacerbated it to make her want to commit suicide and, and, and kill herself ultimately. Definitely. And and not to attack anyone or, or be ugly, but the Ruff family was not even close to supportive, not even a little bit. Um, the way I saw them as they were very antagonistic and they needed to mind their own business. Their son's a grown man. Leave him alone. If he loves her and he's happy with her, let him be. It's none of your business. What do you chalk up there? maybe over-aggressive curiosity towards, if that's what we're going to say. What do you chalk that up to being? I feel like they were a well-known family in the part of East Texas that they lived in. And money affects people sometimes. I saw them, and again, this is not, this is just calling the facts like I saw them, and this is just my opinion. I saw them as very affluent, snooty people that if things weren't exactly how they wanted them, then they didn't want them. And, you know, Lori didn't seem to be some, uh, you know, East Texas oil debutante royalty or something like that. She was just an average chick that Blake met at church. And I don't feel like that she fit their mold of who they thought their son should marry. Given your experience as a survivor of domestic violence and what you sort of have gone through in a lot of ways that might have mirrored Lori's experience yourself, is there a world where you can see that even though she might have been the hand to have done it, that she was sort of brought there through not only her own mental misgivings, but also this family around her being, to your point, just unsupportive to her in a lot of ways? Could this be considered almost like a mental murder that she was sort of forced in some sort of non-consensual way to kill herself like she was murdered by a emotional distress an emotional force that is a really good way to look at it i've never heard that term before but that's it i feel like she was definitely drawn uh not drawn she was definitely pushed to ending her own life and the fact that she did it in their driveway, to me, that, yeah, I mean, that that was a flip, a middle finger flip, a, you know, a hair flip, a nose flip, whatever. That was a flip to them. Hey, look at this. That's definitely a, you know, sometimes people think that they attempt suicide to get, you know, as a cry for help and they want people to look at them. Her doing that and then doing it where she did it was an absolute, for sure, in your mind, a fuck you to this family. Oh, yeah, yeah. She yes. was definitely saying fuck you to them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that her suicide, where she did it at, said multiple things. Hey, look, I'm finally out of your lives. Look what you made me do. I'm finally out of your life. And now I'm leaving you something to think about for the rest of your life. On January 1st, 2011, just after Lori's funeral and cremation, Blake's brother-in-law, Miles, and a few other family members drive to the house in Leonard where Lori stayed after her marriage ended. And the Ruffs had long suspected that Lori was hiding something from Blake. They wanted to search the house to try and find out what secret she may have been keeping from her husband. 
Miles finds the home in a disastrous condition. Dirty dishes, laundry everywhere. My OCD is flaring right now. There are trash bags full of shredded documents littered about. Even her daughter's bed is soiled. This this is a sad scene, people. There is also paper everywhere full of Lori's scrawled ramblings. Where she ran out of space on a page, she often continued writing on top of whatever she had just written. This is heartbreaking. I don't want to make light of this. Poor Lori and her poor daughter. Clearly, she had some sort of mental illness going on that wasn't being addressed or wasn't taken care of. And that and that's sad. There are a few places in the home Miles is particularly eager to search. Before he left for Leonard, Blake had informed him that there were a few spots Lori had instructed him to never look, including a locked chest labeled crafts hidden in the back of the closet. Anyone who is living and currently breathing and listening to this podcast right now knows that if you tell someone not to think about something or not to look somewhere or not to hit the fucking button, all they're going to do is think about that thing, look at that thing and hit the fucking button. I don't want that. I think there's just trust all around that needs to happen here. And Miles finds the box, immediately breaks it open with a screwdriver. Which also says to me that this was not a very well-kept box. I mean, she could have kept a a safe or a vault or something with a fucking code if it was that big of a deal. But of course he did this because he's a human being. Are you ready to find out what was inside? Well, inside he finds a court document showing that in 1988, 15 years before meeting Blake, Lori had changed her name. She had originally been called Becky Sue Turner, which is the most perfect name, in my opinion. Also inside the box are several other pages, including letters of reference from a landlord and a previous employer and a scrap of paper on which was scrawled the words North Hollywood Police, 402 months, Ben Perkins Law Office and an address. Miles brings the document to an acquaintance of his who happened to be a private investigator and asks for some help finding out about Becky Sue's past. Now, the P.I. turns up some truly shocking information. The real Becky Sue Turner had died in a fire in 1971 at the age of two. In May of 1988, Lori had obtained a copy of Becky Sue's birth certificate from her birthplace in Bakersfield, California. At that time, many places would simply mail birth certificates to anyone who requested them. Lori had been smart, making sure to request a document from a child who was born in California, but died in Washington State in an effort to avoid being noticed by state record databases. Holy shit, how the fuck did she know how to do this? This is some honest sleuthing shit. I don't want to give anyone tips, but like, not a bad thing to do. Lori's information is turned over by the roughs to the Social Security Administration to report the potential identity theft. And in September of 2011, an investigator named Joe Velling is assigned to her case. At first, Joe is able to uncover quite a bit of information about Lori's past. In June of 1998, using Becky Sue's birth certificate, Lori obtained an Idaho ID card, which listed her age as 18 years old. In July of 1988, Lori moved to Dallas, where she legally changed her name from Becky Sue Turner to Lori Erica Kennedy. Lori was then able to obtain a Social Security card and become an entirely new person in under two months. And by obtaining her GED, Lori was able to enroll in the University of Texas Arlington without providing any high school transcripts. This woman is very, very smart. It's also important to note that given the rush of this, it makes me kind of wonder if she's in trouble herself. Is she doing this so quickly because she's in hot water and this is like her only method to survive? I don't know. 
When Joe hits a dead end as to Lori's original identity, Joe turns to the other documents found in the box. The job reference came from an employer who never existed, and he also contacted the attorney, Ben Perkins, who had never met Lori. I've looked at the paper from the box, and the page with the lawyer's name is absolutely just full of scrawls all over the place. I wonder if the stuff written on the page had some sort of different meaning than we can even begin to fathom. Again, mental illness is playing a huge role in here. Maybe she saw an ad somewhere and just wrote it down. Joe then runs photos of Lori through every facial recognition database he knows of, but her photo does not match any of the missing persons or criminals on file. Lori's fingerprints were sent to the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security in the hopes of finding a match, but none turn up. Okay, so this probably means she was never in any sort of position where she needed to have her photo or prints taken for the government, right? I mean, again, this is not the day of age of the internet. She doesn't have an Instagram profile, you know, like even driver's license to some extent didn't always have a picture. I mean, that's not just being in criminal trouble. That there, That's also military workers, government workers, stuff like that. So it's not necessarily that odd. Joe even tries to find out information about who this mystery woman really was using the serial numbers on her breast implants. I didn't even know you could fucking do that. Breast implants have serial numbers on them? Is that true? Oh my God, my producer's saying yes. Who knew? But I'm a lesbian, I didn't even know that. But learns that she had gotten them after becoming Lori Kennedy. Wow, I'm learning so many new things. At a loss, Joe obtained samples of Lori's DNA and registered it with the nationwide archive of missing and unidentified persons, as well as Ancestry.com, hoping that one day her DNA will match a new entry. After years of searching for Lori's true identity, Joe comes up empty-handed. Frustrated, he contacted a Seattle Times reporter he knows in the hopes that crowdsourcing the story would help drum up new leads. And honestly... This is a great method because they were looking for such basic information about literally anyone who ever lays eyes on this woman. So this is a good kind of, you know, two minds are better than one. More eyes, the better here. And on June 22nd, 2013, an article about Lori runs on the front page of the paper and goes on to be published in news outlets all across the world. The mystery of Lori's identity becomes a subject of great interest to a group of armchair detectives who convene online and try to help hunt down clues. This brings me back to my conversation with Kenda Martinez, one of the many armchair detectives that took on the challenge. Who is Lori Ruff? Now, Kenda, I'm curious because it sounds like the hive mind came up with a whole list of potential reasons why Lori might have gone through so much trouble to hide her identity, to your point. Maybe she was in a cult. Maybe someone was after her. This was could have been a safety issue for her. A lot of people do this uh, without any malicious reasons, for sure. Can you tell us about some of those ideas that, that the web sleuths had kind of come up with? Which seemed particularly likely? Which seemed absolutely not likely to you, if you have a few that you could just talk about? Well, let's see. The suggestion that she was a spy... She was part of the KGB. Like, get the fuck out of here. Are you serious with that? Like, <laughs> and I mean, I know that was like the Cold War and stuff, but. Doesn't seem likely. People, come on, you know? But, I, you know, that was the most far-fetched one to me. Uh, another, you know, another one was that she was trying to run away from a cult. You know, there there had been a commune in the northwest area at one point. Okay, great. You know, but 
why would she be trying to escape that? Like, you, you can just leave. I mean, it's not federal prison camp. You know, I mean, you can just walk away if you want to leave. Usually, usually. Um, I had it nailed down that she was probably running from an ex-husband or someone. Uh, or that she had committed some type of crime and that she was a fugitive. That was what your overarching gut said to you as you were unfolding the details, essentially. Right, right. In December 2015, Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogy and amateur detective, contacts the Social Security Administration's investigator, Joe Velling, to present a theory. Okay, you ready for this? When Colleen read about Lori's case, her instinct was to turn to DNA for clues. Now, from what we can tell, Blake Ruff was already on this. He privately sent his daughter's saliva samples to DNA databanks in the hopes of one day being able to answer questions about her mother. Colleen asks the Ruffs for access to the accounts, which they gave her, and she starts checking them periodically. Most of the genetic hits turned out to be distant biological relatives who were kind of no help identifying Lori. But one potential DNA match turns up a biological first cousin named Michael Cassidy. Success! Well, okay, not yet. Turns out there are thousands of Michael Cassidy's in the United States, which is why you name every kid Darren Cart, people, because there's probably not that many of them. Good job, Mom and Dad. Colleen first tried contacting him through the genealogy site, but got no response. Months go by, and while more extremely distant relatives continue to pop up, the truth remains hidden. That is until a one-third, yes, a one-third cousin appears. This cousin just so happens to have a more robust family tree, and it provides Colleen the break she needs. She traces the third cousin's history to their great-great-grandfather, born in 1848, and back down a different genealogical branch until she hits the name Michael Cassidy. It is so fascinating that we can actually do this and even have records from like 200 years ago. I got to say, it's pretty impressive. Colleen is able to determine that Lori's cousin, Michael Cassidy, lives in the Philadelphia area, which is kind of incredible. So this mystery that started in Texas, went to the West Coast and is now sitting in the city of brotherly love. What are the chances? And then through the use of social media, people finding databases and hiring a few private investigators, Colleen learns that Lori's mother was likely one of Michael Cassidy's aunts. Which one? Well, she wasn't there yet. She still had no way of knowing Lori's even real name. So we have a slight hit here, but not a not a bullseye. Now, stuck at a dead end, Colleen calls Joe and details exactly what she's found. In March of 2016, Joe flies to Philadelphia to meet the Cassidy family and find out if they can provide any clues to Lori's identity. I mean, talk about a delicate situation. Remember, we don't know why Lori was hiding from them. Instead of approaching Michael, Joe picks out a different relative whom he thinks he might have a better idea about who Lori could be. Joe arrives unannounced at this woman's workplace, which, by the way, I mean, Jesus Christ, call a girl, text a girl. He explains who he was, asks, do you have a moment for me to tell you a story? Again, really creepy if someone just kind of came out of nowhere to my workplace and do you have a moment for me to tell you a story i would have called hr so fast but he then explains the mystery of Lori ruff and the great great grandfather they have in common blake's family had provided some photos to help with the search and joe began pulling them out to show the woman and hope she might have a lead for him 
Joe lays out the photos one by one on the table. And when he gets to Lori's driver's license picture, the woman exclaims, my God, that's Kimberly. This is the break in the case, people. Lori is identified as Kimberly McLean. She left her home in 1986 at 18 years old and was never heard from again. That means she had been hiding for 24 years before her death. Wow, right? Imagine finding out you have this family member then having to immediately grieve for this family member. It's a very weird case of mourning here. Kimberly's mother... Deanne Cassidy, now 80 years old, is indeed Michael Cassidy's aunt and had been married to a man named James McLean at the time of her daughter's birth. That same month, Deanne took a DNA test to confirm that Lori is indeed her daughter. Okay, so we know a little lineage here. And although Deanne had declined to speak with the media, her brother Tom Cassidy has shared some of Kim's background. Through Tom, we've learned that Kim grew up in the suburbs of Philly with her parents and sister. Her father, James, was a carpenter and a volunteer firefighter, while her mom was a homemaker. Tom's description of Kim's childhood sounds kind of idyllic, not to lie to you. Her father hand-built her wooden playhouses in their yard, took her for rides on his fire truck. The family had dinner together every night. They spent a lot of time together. This is kind of the stuff that movies are made of. However, when Kim was in her teens... Deanne met a man named Robert Becker, divorced James, and moved her daughters to Wincote, PA. According to Tom, Kim never adjusted to the divorce. Her new home, new school, new stepfather all seemed to be too much for her. Which, to be fair, as a kid, and I'm saying that under 18, that's a lot of change for any one person. Moving is really tough. Going to a new school when you've made all these friends is really tough, let alone this new parental figure in your life. So there does seem to be a lot of change happening. When Kim does turn 18 in 1986, she moved to King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Then one day, a few months later, told her mother she was leaving for good, told the aunt not to come looking for her. Tom had shared that nobody in his family can figure out why Kim chose to disappear after she was already a legal adult living on her own, but realized after learning of the two separate name changes that disappearing was clearly her intent. As far as Kim's family has been willing to share with the media, after she moved away from King of Prussia, everyone in the family just lost contact with her altogether. First of all, and I think this is kind of the big question here, why did Kim leave? We don't know. I mean, we all have our our assumptions and theories, but I think her family knows why she left, but they've never said. My opinion, my thoughts on it are that there was some type of sexual abuse going on. Because my follow-up question to this, and, and this kind of maybe ties in with your theory here, why would a family sort of let her disappear? She's only 18 years old at this point, and I know she told them not to come looking for her, but what kind of family would kind of just agree to be like, okay, yeah, like, go off, like, I don't really want to contact with my kid after this moment? I That that was one of my first questions. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Right. You know? What kind of family I is mean, this? I, if my... 17, 18, 19 year old. I mean, my, my youngest is fixing to be 21 and I'm still like, where the hell are you going? My mom you know? still texts me at 10 o'clock <laughs> at night when I'm 34 after I land being like, yeah. are you in bed? Are you okay? You know, and I'm a full blown woman here I'm, yes. and I'm not an 18. So I, that blows my mind. And I am not one of these people that, you know, I, I wasn't raised by a helicopter parent. Um, I don't consider myself a helicopter parent, 
but I'm like, hey, where are you going? I need to know where you're going. Like you, you're not fixing to pack your shit and leave. What's wrong with you? This is implying to me that they felt like Kim was sort of some stain on the family, some problem mm-hmm. that they just wanted to get rid of, and her disappearance solved it for everyone and made it sort of mm-hmm. easy. It, it seems like Kim started phasing herself away from her family right after her mom's divorce. Could her there have been some sort of major conflict or even abuse from her new stepfather? Is there any evidence to kind of show that there might have been? Maybe, maybe her mom just didn't want to deal with it. She's married in a new relationship. This is Kim's problem. Kim's the issue here. Let, let's just let her leave and then our problems will be fine. I mean, is that where your theories have always sort of pointed to? Is there anything that's been contradictory to that? Pretty much that's, that's how I feel. Uh, that, that generation, you know, you, you listen to your spouse. Your spouse was more important. I, I mean, this family had been well-known in the community you know, seen around town, talk to their neighbors, socialize, you know, block party kind of things. And I remember a neighbor lady that lived like behind them, like they shared their back fence, like their privacy fence uh, that was, that was behind the family. And one day, like a couple of weeks, a month later, you know, Lori's mom mentions to the neighbor, oh, yeah, you know, she, she left. What? Why? Again, that goes back to why would you not just tell everyone, oh, my God, my child walked off. You know, my 18-year-old daughter walked off. She wasn't even finished high school yet. If you see her, please try to talk to her. Please call me. You know, something. Why would you just casually mention it? you know, over the fence to your neighbor a, a couple of weeks, a month later. That that got me also. It seems callous and cold and mm-hmm. totally detached. Yep. You know, and, and the other thing that to me has spoken volumes, the mom is in her well into her 80s now. And she's probably in her 90s by now, maybe. But she, she was in her 80s at the time this was solved. We have had no comment whatsoever from her. Um, It's a a distant relative, like a, you know, a a brother, an uncle. It's another relative, a son-in-law. Someone else has been the spokesperson for the family. You know, and the excuse has been, oh, she's in her 80s. You know, she's not, she's not in good health. You know what? Fuck her. Let her, she needs to come talk about this. Why did her kid leave? Why did her kid leave? Why didn't she just let her kid walk off? What what happened? We need to know. There are now only two years of Kim's life that Joe is unable to fill in. She left home in 1986 and assumed her first new identity in 1988. She spent time in Las Vegas, California, and Idaho before settling down in Texas. So she's literally hitting every corner of the United States, it feels like. And in that time, Kim became... Becky Sue, then Lori Kennedy, at which point she obtained her GED, graduated from college, met Blake, got married, and had a child. As far as anyone could tell, Kim was never involved in any criminal investigations, nor could they find any other reason why she might have left so abruptly and permanently. And 
as far as we know, I mean, she's not really harming anyone by doing this. She's an adult doing this. There's no evidence she might have gone AWOL from the army, joined a cult, or gotten into criminal trouble of any kind. Nor did Kim see to benefit financially from assuming either of her new identities. It's not like she's claiming to be somebody's wife or someone's child. Nothing about her life seemed anything but ordinary, certainly not worth going through all this trouble of assuming two new names to hide her identity and literally disappear from her original life. As we've learned, internet detectives are a vital and tremendous part, if not the entire reason we were able to uncover Kim's true identity with the speed we did. It certainly wasn't a short process, but figuring out who this woman really was would have taken infinitely longer if not for the armchair detectives who became obsessed with this case and spent thousands of hours using their own resources to hunt for answers. I want to talk a little bit about the impact that that you and your team and, and in general, you know, armchair sleuths really contribute to society. As we've learned, internet detectives are a tremendous part, if not the entire reason we were actually able to uncover Kim's true identity. Kent, as an amateur detective yourself, can you tell us about how this community tends to work? Could you expound on some of the ways in which amateur detectives are able to be more effective than law enforcement? Because I think a lot of people are still very curious as to how people with maybe no background in law enforcement and and seemingly just a curiosity can solve something that someone who has been trained to solve can't? Well, especially in society now, most law enforcement agencies are very short-staffed and they only have so many resources. It's like there aren't a lot of eyes in law enforcement that can ask the questions, that can see the things that people who are dedicating their time to this can dive into. And also, you know, I much respect for law enforcement. You know, uh, there's one that lives here with me. Uh, But being trained for that sometimes gives you tunnel vision. And sometimes you just need a logical thinking person to bring some new information in you know an officer is worried about uh, an an investigator excuse me an investigator is worried about man these fingerprints that we pulled off this dining room table you know they're they're not in the system and blah 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 and and i'm over here and, and not me in particular i'm talking about web sleuths in general you know i'm over here thinking about okay If you look on the kitchen counter in this picture, there's an ashtray with cigarettes in it, with cigarette butts in it. Who smokes Winston 100s? You know, and and it's like, oh my God, you know, uh, Bobby that works down at the Washateria, you know, is the only person I know that smokes Winston 100s. So boom, now we're going to go talk to Bobby. Bobby wasn't even a suspect before. Bobby wasn't even on anybody's radar. But I think that it takes it takes different people. We all think differently. We're all wired differently. We all have different aspects. We all have something different to bring to the table. Well, right. And I, I hear you talk, and this is obviously more of a general statement, but I think, to be fair, when we were talking about tunnel vision with police, I think sometimes their focus is on certainly serving justice, but also closing the case and, 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 and making sure that they have an answer. Whereas web sleuths 
want the right answer. Right. They, they want to solve the mystery. They don't necessarily want to close the case. They want to make sure that right. every stone is unturned and every question is answered. Right. And, and you know, with law enforcement, and again, no disrespect, it's like all of their arrows are pointing to this one person, this one outcome, and that's it. We're fixing to take them to trial. We're going to get a conviction case closed. Boom. On to the next one. On September 19th, 2016, Lori Ruff's name is taken off the federal database of missing and unidentified persons. To this day, neither Joe nor Kim's family has any idea what might have caused her to cut ties to her family, although we do have our suspicions. Blake's family is relieved to at least some answers as to Lori's identity and will one day be able to give Blake's daughter some answers about her mother. I just wanted to thank you so much, Kenda, for taking the time today to talk with me about my killer questions around this case. This is really a tragic end to this woman who never really seemed to kind of get a chance. And it does feel a little eerie now because we're all kind of prying into this woman's life and all she wanted to do was disappear. But definitely we have questions that want to get answered. And I really appreciate you answering them as best you could. Definitely. And for you guys listening to the show, what are your killer questions for this case? You can message me on social media at Carpe Darren. And again, I'm Darren Carp. Thanks for listening to Killer Questions. For even more true crime from ID, head to Discovery Plus. Go to discoveryplus.com slash killer questions to start your seven-day free trial today. That's discoveryplus.com slash killer questions. Terms apply.